Hello, listener. Thanks for tuning in. Quick content note at the top of the show. Our chapter book touches on some sensitive topics. We're going to talk about bullying a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about mortality. We're even going to touch on euthanasia or assisted dying, whichever terminology you prefer. The book covers these topics, I think, very sensitively for its intended audience. We just thought we'd let you know. We're also going to talk a little bit about Terry Pratchett's dementia and how it affected his writing. That's all. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. And that's not Matt. (laughs) They're Dave and they're stepping into co-host today while Matt has a bit of a break. And we think that children's books are for everyone. Because we've all been kids. Even, Even the Trunchbull. The They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode we review one picture book and one chapter book. We started with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch you can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. And our theme this month is Hold On To Your Hat. We've got two books about girls who wear special, you might call them virtual or imaginary or magic hats, according to preference. Our picture book is going to be Millie's Marvellous Hat by Satoshi Kitamura. And our chapter book is going to be Terry Pratchett's A Hatful of Sky. But first, Dave, who are you? Well, as you say, I'm not Matt. <laughs> so yes, so I am a podcaster, um, storyteller, person who is interested in words and art and pictures and those sorts of things. And crucially for this podcast, for many years, I worked as a early years library outreach workers. So I went into children's centres and read stories to groups of the under fives on behalf of the library service in the borough of Enfield in London. Um, And yeah, that's me. So our first book is Hatful of Sky by Terry Pratchett. And I chose this one because I know you really like it. What's your story with Pratchett? Uh, I kind of came across Pratchett as a teenager. I guess I was already a fantasy book fan. I'd read The Lord of the Rings. I'd read the, the Earthsea books. So they were hand-me-downs from my older brother, who's six years older than me. I was excited by the front covers, which were drawn in quite a grotesque style, yeah. the early ones. With Mort is where I was like, right, this is a book that that really speaks to me. And in terms of the the Pratchett strands, it's really close for me between the witches and the guards. I go back and forwards, but ultimately I, I prefer the witches. That's my favourite yeah, one. Yeah, me too. Uh, but the guards hold a very strong place in my heart, particularly yes. because Guards, Guards is the book that I finally managed to get my dad to read of, of Pratchett oh. when he was in hospital having a quadruple heart bypass he didn't have any choice and I had to go down to the (laughs) shop to buy him a book right and I was like oh I was about 15 at this time and I was like what can I get him and I was like this is the opportunity he'll have to read it he's stuck in hospital he'll have to read it that's very Tiffany-ish of you indeed right (laughs) 
but I chose guards, guards because um, the the vibe of the guards is kind of very much like the the vibe that my dad talks about when he talks about being in the army in the Second World oh, War. Oh yeah, and I knew he would like that. I read Tiffany Aiken the first two books as a kind of maybe late teenager, young adult. These came out in the early 2000s, right? I think they were coming out when my youngest sister was the right age for them. So we had We Free Men and Hatful of Sky in the house when I was probably would have thought I was too old to have them bought for me. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So shall we go into the intro? Tell people what this book's about. It seems like a good idea. Okay. So Hatful of Sky, like you said, is the second book in Pratchett's Tiffany Aching series. And we're starting here because even though we meet Tiffany in The Wee Free Men, this is the book where she starts to make her own way in the world. She's 11 years old, she's leaving home for the first time, and she takes on a post as apprentice to a witch called Miss Level. And it turns out that witching is an awful lot like work and not glamorous at all. And Tiffany shows no real aptitude for magic. She can't make a shamble and broomstick rides make her sick. And the other local girls learning the craft all know much more than she does and they aren't impressed with her at all. And Tiffany becomes very lonely and terribly homesick. But she didn't travel alone. There's a terrible force hot on her trail and her friends, the little blue men, followed along too to try and save her. But what can you do against something that can't be touched, seen or killed? So we'll leave it there. Yeah. That's as far as we're going to go plot-wise. And I'd like us to talk about... So there's been a new series of covers uh, by Laura Ellen Anderson for the Tiffany books, and you've got one of those. So could you describe it to us? Yeah. Uh, So these uh, covers, uh, they're kind of more designed, I guess, to appeal to younger people. Um, Yeah. They're kind of cartoony in a way that none of the other kind of Terry Pratchett illustrators have really been. This is a kind of more symbolic kind of cartooniness. And so we've got a version of Tiffany, who has no hat in this picture, has her arm over her head. There's wind blowing, uh, making her hair go in lots of different directions. In the background, we have fir trees, which tells us we're not in the chalk. We're in uh, Granny Weatherwax's domain. In the ram tops. We've got some little free men skirting around the bottom of uh, Tiffany's green dress. Uh, behind her is a witch who I think is meant to be Granny Weatherwax. I think so too. But has And has lots of uh, pins in their hat. And there's a owl behind them both and a big moon uh, making everything kind of silhouetted. Yeah. Good description. <laughs> I picked up that maybe you don't like this depiction of Granny Weatherwax. I don't, I'm not unhappy with that depiction of Granny Weatherwax. I mean, she doesn't look old or young, which is right. Yeah. She has her arms crossed, which is right. Uh, but she... She looks cute, though, which is yeah, a problem. Yeah. Tiffany, too, right? Like, yeah, and this is my problem with these. I mean, I think they're very good. Uh, I think they will do what their job is, which is to bring in new readers. Um, I read a quote from Laura Ellen Anderson said she was trying to design them like film posters, and that is how they feel. And they're very in keeping with, I guess, like 
current stylistic choices, which involves little round faces and very big eyes and stylized eyelashes to like denote when a character is a girl. Got That's to have right. big eyelashes. It's uh, it's very anime eyes, you could say. Yes, yes, I suppose. Um, so Tiffany kind of looks like any white girl character might, which is sort of part of what I don't like about them. I mean, I think I think they're good for what they are, and these are very appealing. But I think it gives you the impression that you're going to read a cute story, and Tiffany's not cute. Shall we talk about what a fegal is? Because I mentioned them in the introduction but if you haven't read any tiffany you probably don't know what they are one of the things that a fegal is is a kind of obvious parody of the smurfs oh okay because they're all blue and little and they're like yes. a big collective and there's only one woman but they combine the smurfs with uh the scottish people or the their pixies rather yes. than pixies um, and then another thing that they kind of are is bees. Yeah. <laughs> they are a uh, a hive group. They have a queen and they, they function very much like a hive. One woman yeah. uh, has all the children. All of the rest of them are one mass group of angry Scottish legs and arms. The relevant thing about them in this book is that they are sort of sworn to protect Tiffany. That's right. So Tiffany goes off at the beginning of this book and they go with her and it's just as well. Well, they don't go with her. They follow her later. They yeah. want they want to go with her, but crucially, <laughs> somebody won't let them. So part of what I love so much about this is that... So you, you had read Earthsea before you came to Pratchett, right? Indeed. This feels a lot like a Wizard of Earthsea, right? Yes. <laughs> this is a typical magical person going through their magical education, finding it really boring and dull and not exciting enough, and then getting tempted to do big magics bigger than what they can handle. And then yeah. bad stuff ensues, and then the magical young person has to come to terms with the darkness within themselves. Yep. <laughs> so Tiffany, Tiffany's ready to leave home at the beginning. She's 11 years old and girls her age in the chalk often go off into service. So to like train as maids or something, which is what her parents think she's doing. She feels she's outgrown the wee free men a little bit. And so in the last book, Tiffany, in order to be the Kelder, their boss, their female boss to this like group of men, <laughs> had to technically be engaged to rob anybody yeah. who's their big man. Um, and she was engaged to him, and she doesn't marry him, and she stops being their Kelder. And the clan of the Long Lakes, which is a different clan of we free men, have sent a young woman Pixie, a new Kelder for them, and she's called Jeannie. Yep. And she has married Rob Anybody. And Tiffany went to their wedding, and Jeannie gave Tiffany such a look that said, He is mine, and this is mine. And I don't want you here. This is my territory. It's sort yep. of in danger of like falling into that sort of stereotypical cattiness between women, jealousy, all that. So when the wee free men initially want to follow Tiffany because she's their big wee hag, mm -hmm. um, Jeannie says no. Tiffany's off to learn haggling from the other hags and she's got to learn Keldering all by herself. And her man is going to do what she says. That's right. 
I mean, I do feel for for Jeannie because she's alone in a group of new people like Tiffany. Exactly. So she's she's an interesting parallel to Tiffany. And she's got, she shows up with a present from her mother, which is a triangular bit of leather and some stakes and a hammer and a little bottle of what seems like water. And it's sort of a pre-metal working cauldron that you sort of stretch out the skin over the fire and fill it with water and the water will always boil before the skin burns she does this so she's and they're all looking at her like she's doing magic and sort of she is what do they call it hidlins yeah um and she pours in the bottle that her mother gave her and i thought if it was like a sort of a sourdough starter yeah it's got it's got all the memories of all the kelders that have ever been and it's also got all the memories of all the Calders yet to be, which means it's a seeing into the future potion, among other things. Right. That's her magic. That's part of her magic. She's got other magics that you find out about later in the books. And so this makes her aware of the danger that Tiffany is in. Because the Pixies are magical people, they know about Hivers. And the Hiver is something that is after Tiffany. And it's a danger that you're introduced to at the very, very beginning of the book. And Hiver's kind of a brainless, bodiless bunch of fear and longing and memories that needs a host body. It's also, it is very close to uh, the dilemma that Ged is faced with in the first of the FC yeah. books. In that the other thing a Hiver kind of is, is your shadow self. Yes. Not in its pure form, but when it takes you over, it becomes yeah. your your desires, your negative, your more negative like thoughts in some ways, but without any of the the temper and the moderation. I guess one of the things that the hiver is kind of suggested to be is is kind of the reptile brain. We it's like ancient primordial instinct to survive, yeah. to become the best, to become the most powerful, to be safe, so no one can hurt you. Yeah. yeah. Which makes it interesting because it's not a moral big bad. It is the big bad of this book. Yeah. But it's not, there's nothing moral about it. The Hiver doesn't want to do Tiffany any harm. Right. Really. Or anyone really except in self-defense. The thing is that it's so frightened that any form of violence counts as self-defense, which is interesting. We're going to do a tiny bit of spoiling. Tiffany goes off to learn to be a witch and... Tiffany's not doing very well at being a witch, but she has got this one trick she can do that she's not told any of her teachers about. Right. She's not got a very good mirror at home, but she's also reaching the age where she's more interested in what she looks like. And she's trying on a new outfit and she wants to have a look at herself. So she just invents this trick called the steamy trick where she steps out of her body and then walks around in front of herself so she can have a look at what she's like. And, you know, see if the hat needs adjusting or anything. And then she says, see me not, and hops back into her body and adjusts the hat. A great power. Tiffany thinks this is no big deal. It is a great power. (laughs) But what it does is it leaves her body empty and available to hop into (laughs) if you happen to be searching for a host body. Interestingly, in relation to what you were talking about in terms of the Kelder and Jeannie's kind of memory, the Hiver is also that. The Hiver is also a thing that has passed through many different 
people and remembers all of their memories, which is and why... tigers. Right, well, saber-toothed tiger, yeah. <laughs> what Tiffany can do is remember the memories of the people that have been hivers and the saber-toothed tiger that have yeah. been, been in, in, in the hiver before. The hiver is fundamentally lonely. And this is a book about loneliness. And before we get to the point where the hiver actually manages to get into Tiffany... Tiffany's already going through this leaving home, being ready to leave home, being ready to move on and then leaving home. Actually, it's really scary and disconcerting and actually it's really lonely and she's from this big flat place where they keep sheep and now she's surrounded by trees and it feels too close and she misses the big wide horizons. And she thought she was fine when she left, you know, like um, Miss Tick who was sort of escorting her to her new placement kept asking oh, it would be all right if you were in to have a cry you know it'd be perfectly fine and Tiffany's like no really I'm fine because she is then but then she gets there and she's going through I feel like it's a really good parallel with when you go off to secondary school yeah um you're really done with primary school usually yeah uh, it's it's enough you're a big kid now you're ready for some independence and some responsibility and time away from your parents and then you get there and you're this tiny fish in a huge pond. And this is what happens to Tiffany. Tiffany leaves thinking she's quite a big deal. Well, she like, is. To be and- absolutely clear, she saved the world. <laughs> she uh, did. At least okay. the chalk. But she's, yeah. uh, but, but it's implied the whole world. And yeah. Granny Weatherwax <laughs> took her hat off to her, which yeah. is pretty big deal. And she, she did <laughs> defeat the Queen of the Fairies, which is like one of the biggest, most worst uh, evil creatures you can have. Sure. But also she was nine then. <laughs> she was And nine. she doesn't remember it very well. Yeah. And it feels a bit like a dream. You know, like, nine is a long way away when you're 11. But so she's, you know, she's she's got an ego when she leaves. She thinks she's pretty cool. Um, She thinks she's pretty promising. Everybody tells her she's pretty promising. And then the first thing that happens is she gets on a broomstick with half of her new mentor. Because her new mentor has two bodies. Some people thought she was twins. She's not twins. She's one person in two bodies and they can separate and do different things. And this is how she gets everything done. So she leaves one body at home, like making the house ready for Tiffany and another body comes on a broomstick to pick her up. Miss level. And Tiffany cannot fly a broomstick. She gets so sick. She says, oh, I'm not scared of heights. And then she goes up and she realises she's scared of depths yep. of stuff being this underneath good. her. It's a good, <laughs> yeah. uh, good description of the, of the issue. Yeah. <laughs> So she's sick like several times on the way there, even though Miss Level kindly decides that they're not going to fly very high to account for the fact that Tiffany's never been on a broomstick before. And so Miss Tick and Miss Level both make a thing called a shamble. And a shamble is like a magical amplifier. They say it's similar to how uh, a spyglass isn't magical, but it lets you count the dragons on the moon. It's sort of... it allows you to amplify what's already there, to see what's already there, but bigger. It's like a cool magic thing you can do. That They say it's not exactly magic, but it's a way to channel your magic. And it's a little bit like Cat's Cradle. Right. It's string and bits of pocket fluff and something living. So it's, an egg or a beetle. It's like a cross between Cat's Cradle and a dream catcher, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is something that is important for a witch to be able to do. And Tiffany thought she was pretty good at Cat's Cradle. But she's rubbish at making a shamble. She just can't do it. She keeps practicing and she can't do it. 
and Miss Level just puts her to work doing jobs, just jobs, like cutting old men's nails and cleaning things and helping people, bringing them food. And milking the goats. Milking the goats. Very important. <laughs> Tiffany's already feeling quite disillusioned. All in all, it seemed to Tiffany, most of what witches did really was very similar to work. Dull work. Miss Level didn't even use her broomstick very much. And that was a bit depressing. It was all a bit, well, goody-goody. Obviously that was better than being baddy-baddy, but a little more excitement would be nice. <laughs> so she's ready for the hiver. <laughs> she's ready. It's true. She's ready to do some baddy-baddy already. And then sort of the thing that pushes her over the edge and makes her step out of her body is some bullying by some other witches. This is also true, yeah. Like, it's it's horrible, and it's part of what makes me love this book so much, because that is what happened to me when I went to secondary school. I was one of those unfortunate 11-year-olds who actually went away to school, yeah, to boarding school when I was 11. I was I thought I was ready. I was done with my little primary school, and I was done with being at home all the time, and I got there... And I was immediately incredibly homesick. And I immediately fell prey to a group of popular girls. And it was just horrible. And kind of this is what happens to Tiffany, even though Tiffany, I feel, at age 11 is a lot more confident than I was. And she comes really, like, I've got a lot of admiration for her. She's, yeah. She is really quite secure in herself when she arrives. Yeah. She's got quite a good handle on herself. But... So this nice girl, Petulia, comes round to invite her to the Sabbath with the other young witches who are training in the neighbourhood. Petulia's really nice. Petulia's yeah. going to be a pig witch. Um, she's really good at veterinary stuff. And she's really kind. And she starts every sentence with, um... Which is an incredibly relatable... Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean <laughs> I, I love that. Um, and it tells you so much about her very very quickly yeah uh, the um and the fact that she can't bear to disagree with anyone so she says to tiffany uh oh i don't like sheep and then tiffany says oh i really like sheep and then petulia has to like back up and turn all the way around go, oh well i suppose some sheep are not so bad actually they can be quite nice can't they you could say <laughs> they're better than goats yeah that's right <laughs> She's this lovely, insecure 11-year-old girl. And she's also at the stage where she's really trying. She's overloaded with jewellery. Occult jewellery. Occult jewellery to sort of, <laughs> to keep up with Anna Grammer, who is the, the mean girl. I think, yeah, like, this mean girl's kind of bullying setup. It could have been done really badly, uh, but it's been done really well, I yeah. think, in this book. It's so well drawn. It's... It's mean, it's not violent, it's not physically violent at all, and it's not even outwardly exclusive, because Tiffany is invited, but she's invited in order that they can laugh at her, and make her feel small and stupid, and even though Tiffany comes in feeling not small and stupid, they get there, they manage, and Tiffany's really good even at analysing the situation when she's in it, but she gets pulled into it as well into the sort of one-upping or who's the coolest and tiffany's claim to fame as you've said is that granny weatherwax took her hat off to her 
And Granny Weatherwax in that book also gave Tiffany a virtual hat. It's an invisible hat. Mostly you can't see it, but the rain and snow know it's there. And so they don't fall on your head when you're wearing it. And Tiffany can sometimes see it when she does the see me trick. But mostly people can't see it. And as an attempt to try and impress the other girls, I'm going to read a little bit again. Because it's so painful and great. She decides to tell them about the hat. She spoke to you, did she? Snarled Anagramma. Was that before or after you kicked out the fairy queen? Just after, said Tiffany, who was not used to this sort of thing. She turned up on a broomstick. She added, I am telling the truth. Of course you are, said Anagramma, smiling grimly. And she congratulated you, I expect. Not really, said Tiffany. She seemed pleased, but it was hard to tell. And then Tiffany said something really, really stupid. Long afterward, and long after all sorts of things had happened, she'd go la 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 to blot out the memory whenever something reminded her of that evening. She said, she did give me this hat. And they said, all of them, with one voice, what hat? Yeah. And it's awful. I mean, that is that is an experience I think so many people can relate to. Of like, you say a sensible thing, and you know that it's sensible, but other people don't, and somehow you end up looking like you're stupid. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And 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 I think that's very relatable. I also would like to say I very much enjoyed your anagramma. Very good voice work there. Yeah, it's so powerful that scene. I think and very relatable and. Petulia starts waving her hand around above Tiffany's head to see if she can feel a hat. And it instantaneously makes her doubt the existence of this hat that she knows yes. is real. And not just that she knows is real. Like, I think the hat, the hat is many things, but one of the things it is, is self-respect. Suddenly, you know, she can't see it. And she starts to wonder if, you know, if it was ever there and... Yeah, did did Granny Rutherwax just trick her? And it's kind of like a weird funhouse mirror version of gaslighting, whereby, like, they're saying that something that they can't see isn't there, uh, but it is. Um, And she, you know, she knows it is, but then she starts to doubt herself. But they manage to make her doubt. Yeah. You've had all the build-up of all the, like, I suppose, tween emotions and, like, resentment and boredom, and then it culminates in this bullying scene that, makes her doubt the hat so much that she decides to step out of her body again to check the hat's there. And at this point, she's done this a few times in the book, and every time she steps out of her body, the hiver like sniffs the air and is like, oh, over there, empty body. And this time it's near enough that it jumps in and it possesses her. Should we talk about hiver Tiffany? Yeah. Yeah, hiver Tiffany is a strange one because whilst it's kind of horror, it's also kind of appealing yeah because it's all the id for someone who is so calm and sensible as a character who does the right thing consistently you're so used to her doing the right thing it means she never tells any of the characters who are annoying where to go i did want to talk a bit about the bullying that mm-hmm. tiffany does because it's pretty bad and it's not just to anagramma the first person she bullies is petulia Petulia comes around to check if she's okay because she took her home last night after the what hat incident. And then Petulia comes around because she's really nice. Petulia is a really nice person, despite being under the influence of anagramma most of the time, um, to check on her. And Tiffany comes out and says something like, you're too fat and you're not very clever. 
Yes. And she she says this because she knows it will hurt Petulia. Yes. Because Petulia is slightly fat and also moves through the world in a way that makes you think that she doesn't like that about herself. That she's yes. a little bit awkward. She sees her and she's like, right, you're first. Right. So she turns on Petulia and then she's pretty horrible to Miss Level. She bullies Petulia first, I think, to make it very clear to us that it's that even though it's going to be enjoyable when she does bully Anagramma, yeah, she bullies the person we least wanted to bully first, yeah, so that we don't go, yeah, we're with her. Like it, it's 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 Pratchett saying, this is going to be good in a minute. It's going to be fun. But look, this was a person who didn't deserve it in any way. It is very much like Pratchett making it very clear. This is bad. She bullies Petulia. She jumps on the broomstick. And she sort of has this little power struggle with it. She's like, right, I'm not going to learn you. You're going to learn me. The stomach remembers, though. Like, her stomach (laughs) remembers. And I think that's crucial and interesting. Like... It's it's about kind of embodiment, isn't it? It's like yeah. the the body remembers, the body keeps the score, all of that stuff, and, it's, yeah. and it is that. It's like so she does manage to fly, and she does be sick twice. Yeah, whilst her brain can be convinced yeah. of her brilliance, her body has limits. The hiver isn't Tiffany, like like when it takes Tiffany over. It isn't Tiffany. Sort of it is. Exactly. But at the same time, it is. And so it's not one of those things where Tiffany afterwards can shrug her shoulders and say, like, morally, that wasn't me. No. Like, none of the things the Hiver would have done would have happened if it hadn't have been specifically Tiffany that it takes over. And they're all thoughts that Tiffany's already had. Right. But the mean thoughts are not the issue. That's the whole point with the hyper, right? We all have mean thoughts. To have a mean thought is is, is very human, it's very reasonable. Acting on it is the issue. Talk about mortality. Yes, mortality. So we don't want to spoil this book. That said, there's some interesting topics and themes that come up towards the end of the book. So it's worth knowing that it will touch on death. It will touch on mortality and kind of euthanasia in some kinds of way. Or assisted death in some way. And within the idea of the hiver, I think you have, and I think from what we've said already that you can see this, we have the idea that maybe it's also a kind of metaphor for losing your mind. It's a metaphor for what you could say is dementia. We know that Terry Pratchett had dementia and was an advocate for the right to have assisted death. Pratchett had a very um, public journey with his dementia, and I think that's what's so interesting about him, and one of the things that I love him for is that he started losing his mind. He start, you know, he he was very young for having dementia, and he started losing the ability to write and read his own books. Yes, and so he started writing with his wife, Lynn Pratchett, but he kept going to conventions and giving readings even as he wasn't able to do the reading i think it was a very interesting choice to stay such a public figure while his mind was deteriorating and to have stayed active as a writer right until the end even though i think you can tell a little bit which books he's had help with and which ones he hasn't and i think there's nothing wrong with that that's probably true the the last book as well in this tiffany aiken series 
it was the last book he wrote. It was kind of co-written. It wasn't finished. It's a very interesting piece of writing to read. It's not a great book. But it's interesting that one of the places that he explored, I think, his his kind of feelings around things like assisted dying and uh, dementia is in this series he was writing for kids. And I think that's very Pratchettian. Kids aren't unable to understand this stuff. In fact, they're more able to understand it in some ways than adults. I agree. It's very interesting that one of the central things that not just Granny Weatherwax, but all witches within this world help with... the death doulas. Right, their palliative care with the addition of assisted dying. He deals with death and dying and abusive yes. relationships better in his books for children than he does in his books yes. for adults. And I think that's part of... It shows such great respect for children. Uh, who's your favourite character, Dave? Um, my favourite character is Granny Weatherwax. I have, though, I would like to state for the record, an objection to the concept of favourites. Here we go. <laughs> and, like, for me, it's a hierarchical thing, um, mm-hmm. and I don't believe in hierarchies, which is why I don't have a favourite character, but my favourite is Granny Weatherwax. Of course it is. When they're going into the witch trials, I'm not going to say much about the witch trials, because it's towards the end of the book, we don't want to spoil it. Granny Weatherwax and Tiffany go in together, and they're met by a guy at the gate taking tickets and he awkwardly reluctantly informs Granny Weatherwax that this will be two half price tickets because one's for a senior citizen and one's for a child and Granny Weatherwax says no no we'll have two full price tickets please (laughs) and then she gives him invisible money that uh, makes a clink (laughs) when he puts it into the thing but literally like she walks in without paying she wants it to be known it's two whole people yeah, she walks in not paying because she's a witch, not because she's not a person. A person, she is a full one, not a senior one, not a half-level one, and crucially, so is Tiffany. And yeah. I think that that is one of the things that the books are about. They're about solidarity, solidarity between two marginalised groups within society, those considered too old to contribute and those considered too young to contribute. My favourite is Petulia Gristle, the pig witch. She's the first person Tiffany's age to reach out to her. And through the rest of the books, Petulia's a really good friend to Tiffany. Scaryometer, how scary is this book? Scary is good. It's one of the things we want from fiction. And this is scary enough for the 9 to 11 bracket. So I will give it 10 for this age group, 5 for older kids, and uh, 0 for adults, let's be honest, or maybe 1. So 5? Yeah, we could call it 5 if you want. Um, I don't like apportioning numerical values to things. Okay, so these these sections are not for you. No, I like them though. I like to be challenged. (laughs) Should we talk a bit about the kind of scariness that it is? It's sort of horror... But it's not, you haven't got blood, you haven't got dripping bits, entrails. No, the only dripping bits are in medical contexts. And that's not scary. It's just gross. The scariest thing, I guess, is the idea of possession. Yeah. Who's this book for? People just going up into secondary school. It's for everybody, though. Because coming-of-age stories are always... For the person who is that age, who is coming of age, and for the people who remember coming of age. 
I wouldn't go much younger than eight, I think. No. We Free Men is right for nine. You know, it's right for seven to eight. That would work. Even for some precocious five-year-olds. But this is not that book. This is not the We Free Men. You need to have the kind of understanding of identity. You have to understand what it is to have a full, full rounded and complex and compromised identity. Tiffany ages up with you. Yeah. As one of the good things about that series is she starts, and yeah, you could probably start five, six, and she ends at about, oh, is she about 20 in the last one? You, but it, it does do that thing that the most successful coming of age stories do. Yeah. Of, of properly aging with the characters. Should we move on to the picture book? Yeah, so the picture book. Millie's Marvelous Hat by Satoshi Kitamura. Would you like to tell us about this one? Millie's Marvelous Hat is a story of Millie, who is a young girl who has been let out of the house by her parents unsupervised. She's wandering about in the streets. In a, in a city, she sees a hat shop and she's excited by all the hats in the window. She goes in, she says she'd like a hat. Uh, the hat shop man is very polite and uh, respectful and says to her, uh, yes, what hat would you like? And they pick out the hat with feathers. He gets it out for her. She tries it on. She really likes it. He says, great, uh, that'll be like a lot of money. She says, oh, and looks in her purse which has zero pounds in. (laughs) And she says, this is the money I've got. And he sees that there's no money in the purse and he realises that he can't sell her the hat. Uh, And so instead he he gets a different hat out from his collection in a box. The box is visible, the hat is not. And he takes out the invisible hat from the box. Uh, She puts it on her head, she's very happy with it. He explains to her that it can look however she wants it to look. And he offers her the box, but she doesn't want the box, she just wants the hat. And she happily goes out of the shop with her new magic hat that is invisible. uh, And she makes it look like all the different things she wants. She walks out in the street and she sees other people. And she goes to the park and she starts to realise that everybody else has a magic hat. And she starts seeing the magic hats on all these different people. And she has a great day. Goes home to her family with her hat in its most extremely creative version of itself. And goes into the front room, says hello to her parents, says, do you like my hat? Her mum momentarily doesn't know where the hat is, but then does see the hat and says, what a lovely hat. And that they've all got hats and they have dinner at the table, uh, all with hats on. Yes. (laughs) Good summary. So I want to start talking about the art style. It's pen and ink. The line work is kind of a bit thick and blown out, like when you just change the ink in your fountain pen and you get sort of these fat blobby lines. It's like that. And then I think it's been coloured in with a combination of watercolour and a computer, probably. I really like the street scenes. I don't know, Satoshi Kitamura moved to the UK for a while and wrote quite a few of his early books here. I'm wondering if this is a British city or a Japanese city. It feels like London to me. It feels like a London park. Yeah. The fountain feels very British fountain, not Japanese fountain. Uh, The park is very British park with lawns and stuff rather than ornamental Mm. gardens. Then the illustrations of the hat are sort of almost in a different style. There's the first one looks like a peacock, but it doesn't have boundaries. It doesn't have the black lines around the outside that sort of separate it from the background 
it's quite imaginative. And it's detailed. There's a lot yeah. of it. It's it's intricate. There's like, you know, you could spend a lot of time looking at the scenes and see lots of different things. Yeah. Which is important. Yeah. Lots of little Easter eggs, especially in the park scenes. In terms of, is this hat the same as Tiffany's hat? No. No. You think not? They're both about something to do with identity and personhood. But I think that Millie's hat is about imagination it's about her imagination her capacity and everybody's capacity to imagine and self-expression now tiffany's hat is not about that it's about her inner self but it's a more secret part of herself millie's hat is the opposite this is your most external wavy silly bits you know (laughs) it's your whimsy your like fantasy your brief flirtatious moments of desire that fall away and become something new (laughs) they're both invisible though they are both invisible there's almost a what hat moment which is part of what drew me to this as a pair for tiffany is that her mum almost does it she almost says you're not wearing a hat but she doesn't she stops herself and then she goes oh yeah i really like it like it's a sort of it's the opposite of that moment with anagramma it's an affirming story Right, she has the moment when she could have done what yeah. Anagramma did and take away all this joy that, that Millie has had. Because if you're a realist and a materialist, then the way that you read this story is that Millie went to a shop and was given an imaginary hat by a man in the shop, which made her happy uh, because she was imagining it, but there wasn't really a hat there. And if yeah. her mum had told her that, whether it's true or not is a different question. Showing that lens to a child who is playing kind of kills the imagination. Yeah. Um, and the mum makes the decision not to do that. Yeah, I like that about this book. I think the most interesting part of it for me, though, is when she's in the shop. So she tries on the super expensive hat um, and she she asks for the price. The price is £599.99. And then Millie opens her purse and asks for something a little bit cheaper. And the shop assistant asks what sort of price. And she says, well, about this much, and shows him the empty purse. And then at this moment, he says, I see. And he looked up at the ceiling. Millie looked up at the ceiling too. It was covered with interesting patterns. And even in the picture, the shopkeeper looks a bit stern here. And I wondered the first time I read this, oh, is this going to be a capitalism story? Uh, You haven't got money, so you can't have a house. Is she going to be shooed out of this shop? It's interesting as well, because the bit I was talking about the witch trials with the invisible money that goes clean is also (laughs) something that kind of comes up with this, like the empty purse that does have money in if you believe in it, if you believe in the idea that somebody should be able to walk into a hat shop and get a hat regardless of their income kind of the perfect like a beautiful solution and it is true that the the guy in the shop is set up to be an unpleasant potentially character you might think he was going to be the antagonist yeah um but he isn't he just completely validates and in fact he doesn't just validate he comes up with the hat yeah yeah (laughs) he looks at the ceiling and goes what can i do well and the ceiling has got some very pretty hat patterns ah that does make a lot more sense. And they've got brims, most of them. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get onto your brim beef in a minute. 
actually there's this illustration of the shop assistant putting it on her head. Yes. It's invisible, but it's got an outline. It's yes. a little tiny bit darker than the background, which implies that the hat is real, I think. Yes. And then she does. She hands over her no money. Like she, they, there's not, they haven't done away with the transaction. The transaction's just in invisible things. Yes. She put her hand in her purse and handed the man all that she had in it. She's paid all her money, 100% of the money. Absolutely. <laughs> For the very nice hat. I mean, he, he should have given her change, really. I mean, what, you know, I mean, it speaks to a very intrinsic experience of children playing. Children who are brought up under capitalism all have pretend shops and they all know instinctively about pretending to pay money. It also is kind of like an interesting, like it echoes interestingly with like the story of the emperor's new clothes. Yeah. You know, the idea that an invisible clothing can be liberatory rather than shaming and humiliating. Yeah. Like the, the imagination doesn't mean you're gullible. It means you're creative. Yeah, I mean, I think my favourite bit in the book is in the shop, I think, as well. Yeah. Um, for me, it slightly loses it after that for a bit. And then it comes back when the parents are there again. But I'm not a massive fan of the everybody's hats bit, even though I love the idea of it. Yeah, as I've mentioned, it kind of irks me that there's no brims to many of these hats. OK, why does that irk you? Is a hat a hat when it's a peacock standing on your head? Like, yes. what makes it a hat? You're, you're wearing it on your head. Well, why isn't it hair? Hair grows out of your head. Well, lots of things head. can go on your head. I'm interested that this is where you're pedantic. <laughs> As all good witches and wizards, and I am both. Um, you were a hat wearer. I was a hat wearer for many, many years, and I certainly... If I could find a hat that would make my hair look as good as it looks, I would wear it. Not all hats have brims, so I'm not like, if it hasn't got a brim, it's not a hat. But a hat encircles your head. It, okay, it, it doesn't sit on top. It, it keeps the rain off. There are yes. lots of practical, they've got to keep the yeah. rain out, right? It's the practical element of a hat that I feel is missing. And I know that they're hats for the imagination. To me, it loses the sense of hats, basically, because you've just got a lot of people with a lot of things balanced on their heads. You know, be them penguins or peacocks or the Eiffel Tower or whatever else. They're just perched on your head. And that, to me, does not make them hats. I would like more hattish hats. I'd like, you okay. know, top hats with things going on them or bowler hats or, you know, fedoras. If she's getting a magical hat, a marvellous hat, an invisible hat, she should get the wonderfulness of a hat to come along with the wonderfulness of the imagination. I like this page. I'm going to show you it now. This double page spread of all the people in the park with the hats, even though you don't like it. I like it as well as dislike it, but go on. Okay. Because it raises the question of what decides what's on your head. Yes. Is this what each individual person is thinking about or self-conceiving about? Or is this what Millie thinks about all of these people? Right. I mean, and I think it's Millie, right? Because Millie's noticing it. And Millie's yeah. imag and it's Millie's imagination that we're with. Yeah. But I, I agree whether you decide it's Millie or not, it's an open question and it does give really interesting philosophical... Like that page yeah. isn't just where you look at that page and think, what is a hat and are these actually hats if they don't have 
brims or ribbons or any of the things that make a hat a hat. It's also at the page where you go, is this what Millie thinks? Is this something intrinsically coming from the people? Is yeah. Millie observing their hats? Is Millie somehow perceptive and can see their inner lives? Well, so here I think is a very interesting one. This character is reading a book and their hat is the Titanic. Is this character reading a book about the Titanic and then thinking about the Titanic and then the Titanic is the hat and the sea is the brim? It may be that, whether it's the book's about the Titanic or not, if you look at the expression on the kid's face as well, like they've got to the bit in the book where either the Titanic is sinking or that is a kind of cartoon metaphor for... For a sad bit in the book. Yeah, I think that that is what it implies. Uh, yeah. And whether whether it's whether that hat comes from that kid's inner life or Millie noticing the the look on the kid's face, yeah, is the is the kind of question. I mentioned back at the beginning of the podcast that I used to work telling stories to children. Mm. And so when I read a picture book, I think about how you would do it with a group of kids. Yeah. Um, and this is brilliant for that. Yeah. What I was imagining doing with a group of children was a lot of fun. You know, you could say to everyone, where's your hat? You know, everyone imagine your hat. You know, what's your hat look like? What's your hat look like? You can kind of do actions that involve putting on the hat. Like, everyone put on your hat now. Everyone, You can try and get them. This would be so much fun to try and achieve. You could try and get all the kids to leave the room with their hats on so that they go out into the <laughs> everyday real world and keep on going on about their invisible hats and kind of like be a kind of weird happening. So who would you say this book's for? Um, I would say it is for kind of children between the ages of two and a half and five. Yeah. Uh, you know, and for people who like reading books to those age groups. Like two and a half is my favourite age. For, that's when you start being creative and like speaking and understanding the world. But you're still early enough that you are still working it out. So there's yeah. all the interesting stuff for adults to hear. Like, you know, the the unusual observations on the world. By five, you're getting like looking around at your peers like, what am I supposed to say? Yeah. I read this with a four-year-old and it was great. Perfect. I think that's right. He was engaged with, oh, what's happening with the hats? That's a silly hat. Why would you wear that on your head? Where's the brim? That sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) That was episode 31 of Even the Trunchbull. Special thanks to Dave for co-hosting. Thanks for listening, everybody. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or that you love now as a kid. Let us know or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com, on Twitter and Facebook at trunchbullpod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even Even the the Trunchbull. Trunchbull.